Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Otis time of the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Friday, April 9th, 2021, and these headlines, three in a row, really will set up this great interview that I have ahead of us. Uh, number inter, uh, Headline number one in today's New York Times, Gates faces pressures as lawyers expect associate to plead guilty. That's the uh, the new star of the Republican Party, Congressman Matt Gates, uh, probably one of the more popular Republicans in the country today. Heck of a job, MAGA. Uh, here's headline number two. Overcoming Trump's wrath, Governor Brian Kemp, who resisted the former president's election demand, sees Georgia's voting law as a way to regain standing with the GOP base. Heck of a job of being courageous, Governor Kemp. And finally, this one, one of my guests' favorite senators, a Democrat's plea to Biden. Senator Joe Manchin <laughs> suggested that to win over his critical vote, the president must reach out to Republicans. Oh, my goodness. This is a perfect setup for my guest, as I do with all distinguished guests. I ask them to introduce themselves. So introduce yourself, distinguished guest. Hi, everybody. It's great to be back, Ben. Uh, I'm David Ferris. I'm a professor of political science at Roosevelt University and the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, among other things. And uh, I'm a contributing writer of the week, and I'm uh, looking forward to uh, riffing on all of the zaniness that uh, is plaguing our country, Ben. Let's, let's yeah. do it. All right, let's do it. I uh, <laughs> I could go with Manchin or Gates uh, to start with. Hearing you riff on uh, Joe Manchin of West Virginia uh, is, and uh, of course, let's not forget Senators, uh, Senator from uh, uh, Arizona, two of my favorites to hear you riff on. But let's start with uh, Matt Gates, uh, Congressman Matt Gates. Your last column for the weekly was pretty funny. I urge everybody to check it out. David Ferris, F A R I S. Google the name, it'll pop right up, and you'll have a good chuckle. Even Matt Gates will probably have to laugh at this. I this may be the sleaziest congressman uh, I've seen, uh, David Ferris, definitely in the 21st century. 
just total sleaze. I know there's a lot of a wiener from uh, New York as a candidate uh, for this distinguished honor. I'm not quite sure. Was he a congressman in the 21st century? I'm getting my years mixed up. But Matt Gates, what a piece of work this guy is. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, your your uh, theories about Matt's Gate, Matt Gates, and why, despite uh, his growing scandal, he's still so popular with the Republicans. Well, sure. I mean, Matt Gates is just. Uh a classic MAGA creation, right? Which is he's somebody who um, is both an idiot, but he's also extremely like media savvy, you know, he's social media savvy. So his career seems to exist solely um, to, to, for people to smash the like and retweet buttons on Twitter. Um, and he's a particular kind of a, a Twitter creature who they do outrageous things to get more engagement from people who are outraged by them. And, and that is like the source of their fame. Um, and so Gates is the guy who, you remember this, he, he took a gas mask onto the, onto the floor of the House of Representatives early in the pandemic to make fun, not a, not a, not a, a face mask, like a, you know, like a World War I, you know, survive a sarin gas attack mask. Um, and he posed for a photo with one of his aides who I'm sure he was trying to, you know, pay for sex. <laughs> and, um, with that photo. It's, uh, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta see the photo, right? Um, and, uh, just, just, you know, just a jerk, right? Like he's the guy that led the, the house Republicans to storm, um, the, the meeting the Democrats were holding and a committee meeting during the, during the impeachment, even though, um, there were already Republicans in the room. Um, he, he decided that, you know, the message he wanted to communicate to the public was that these, these meetings were a secret and, uh, you know, just, a uh, just a terrible crime against, against Donald Trump. So it's all, it's all bad faith all the time, right? Like he doesn't, he doesn't care whether anything that he's saying is true. Um, he doesn't care whether his antics uh, alienate people on the other side. And he's the kind of person that's like, if you're a, if you're a sensible grown adult human being, um, you know, over the age of, of 18 or so, you should be able to spend five minutes with this dude and be like, wow, something's really off with him. Um, and and I, I need to get away from him. Like if you're at a party with Matt Gates, you know, three seconds into your first conversation, it's like, I got to go get another glass of wine, buddy. I'm really sorry, but I, I'm really looking forward to catching up with you later. And uh, and so he's the, you know, I, I don't know why Republican elites are allowing this to happen. But this guy and like, you know, Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, they are grabbing so many headlines with, this, with, the, with the very strange and bizarre things that they're doing. That was before it turned out that Matt Gates was like a serial predator um, who was running some kind of, you know, informal sex trafficking ring with one of his like scummy Florida buddies. Um, it's like, you shouldn't even have needed that scandal to know, just look at him. Like he's, he looks like a crazy person, right? I don't know what it is about these right-wing weirdos, but that they have to have like a bouffant haircut, you know, with <laughs> the hair piled on top. It's like, is there some sort of, is it a code to get into the clubhouse or something? Um, so anyway, my theory is that the, the Republicans are being led around by the nose by like the stupidest people in their caucus. Um, and it's people who all have these like weird things in their past. Like Lauren Boebert has like multiple arrests and Marjorie Taylor Greene was part of some like polyamorous sex ring at her gym. Like these are people that you do like five minutes of research into their background. He's be like, this person should not be a congressman. Um, this person should not be in, you know, this person should not be like a state legislator in, in, in Nebraska, uh, let alone a U.S. Uh, congressperson. So um, I think it's very bad for the Republican Party that, that these are the kinds of people who are producing the headlines for them. And um, and they shouldn't be surprised when one of these people who are obviously like unstable weirdos gets into trouble like this. Um, 
So it's just something I should have seen coming. Honestly. Well, you had a, a line in your column that really uh, struck home. It was just a phrase, like manic energy. I'm doing this from memory. Uh, and there is certain manic energy uh, that those three, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Bobert, and uh, Matt Gates, brings to the game. Uh, and they've done away with any pretense that they're going to be representing their constituents in the traditional way that a congressperson represents his or her constituents. Like, you know, oh, you you need assistance dealing with the federal bureaucracy. Let me guide you through the, you know, the bureaucratic channel so you get your social security question uh, taken care of. Oh, the school needs funding. Let me uh, use my influence on this committee to get aid, educational aid for my home district. Oh, you know, we need road repairs, et cetera. And so tr the traditional role that a congressperson plays where he or she is your voice in Washington. That's out the window, David. It, it, it's like, how can I get on uh, Fox News? How can I insult the Democrats? How can I get MAGA really fired up and piss off Ben and David? I mean, I mean, there's no clearer illustration of this than, you remember when they threw Marjorie Taylor Greene off all the committees um, with a, you know, mostly a party line vote? Um, which should have been like a humiliating, you know, setback for her because committees are how you distinguish yourself in Congress, how you obtain, you know, policy expertise and, and, and become somebody who develops a profile on that thing that you're on the committee for. And not only was she like not embarrassed by getting thrown off of committees, <laughs> she was happy about it. She went out and she was like, oh, great. Well, now I have time to do my what I think is my job, which is trolling the libs. Um, with my like exercise videos. Um, and so it's just, it's very indicative of, the, I think, the mindset of a certain kind of Republican right now, which is they come into Congress, they don't, I don't, don't think they really understand how the Constitution works. People like Tommy Tuberville, like an like Alabama senator, clearly do not understand how the Constitution works. Taylor Greene goes and introduces legislation that she obviously knows is not going anywhere. Um, like she introduced a bill that was like, fire Anthony Fauci. Um, <laughs> and it's like, you can't fire Anthony Fauci with a bill. Like, I just, you know, it's just, it's staggering because it's all theater. It is, it's all a performance that like we're, we, apparently we all bought tickets for, we didn't know it. Um, and I think it's just, a, it's a, it's a sad state of affairs for the Republican party because um, these, when, these people are the face of the party right now. You know, I, I, I just to challenge your listeners. Um, whose face can you, can you immediately call to mind? Uh, is it, is it Matt Gates? Is it Marjorie Taylor Greene? Or is it the minority leader, Kevin McCarthy? Do you even know what that dude looks like? Because he's not getting any headlines, right? And the, and the, and the other leaders in the Republican party are being sort of shunted aside so that these outrageous crackpots and provocateurs can do their thing on Newsmax. And they all, honestly, they all seem to be angling for a life after politics when they get on cable TV um, I think what they don't realize is that 90% of the people that watch cable TV are going to be dead in 10 years. So <laughs> that's fine. But do what, you know, do whatever you guys want. You know, like people under the age of 40 are not watching this stuff. Thank God. Uh, because it's like just a pure brain poison. Yeah. All cable television, pure brain poison. You would just be healthier if you never, ever watched it ever again. <laughs> um, but that's what these guys want to do with their life. They don't care about making laws. Like they don't care about the public good. They don't care about their constituents. And, um, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm cynical enough to think maybe they will never pay any penalty for this. But it's not where I want to be if I was trying to get back into power. You know, it's not what I would be doing. So when I hear you, uh, that great riff, uh, and I read about Gates and I read about Marjorie Taylor Greene, I have two thoughts. My first uh, is the, the inner lefty in me that says, good. 
they will, this will just lead to the further marginalization of the Republican Party, which is a dreadful political party, even without these lunatics. Uh, I just disagree with pretty much ideologically everything they stand for. Again, even without these lunatics. But then there's a part of me, sort of like the good government, uh, you know, study political science the way it's supposed to be in the high school and college guy side of me, uh, who says it's kind of scary uh, that the, the other major political party is being run by lunatics. It was a very close presidential election, as you and I have discussed many times, electorally anyway, with the Electoral College. The Senate's 50-50. So uh, it's scary to a degree if... God forbid they take control again uh, in 2022. God, I've lost track of the day, the years. Twenty and next year's God, it's right around the corner. Congressional election. Do you share that sort of ambivalence that I'm uh, expressing there, David? On one hand, you're delighted by their idiocy, and the other hand, it frightens you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the lesson we should have all learned after 2016. Like, I, I, I don't know if you remember the just the experience of watching the Republican primaries unfold in 2016 was a combination of like horror and euphoria in the sense of like the way you feel when your favorite sports team just starts out like 15 and 0 for like the you know the one time in a century you're like oh this is our year this is great um and I, you know Donald Trump is winning primaries and I was like oh wow well we're going to win the election by 20 points like this is great this is like the greatest thing that's ever happened um and it became you know it just became apparent over time that partisanship was going to set in and Republicans were going to vote for this guy and that means at, at the end of the day, as much as I get some like dark humor out of the antics of these of these crazy people, um, that they are scary. Right? There's nothing stopping Lauren Boebert or Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greene from running for president and becoming the Republican nominee. Um, if they and I, I actually don't I've seen a couple of polls that suggest actually they are that they might not actually be that popular among Republicans. Um, but you, you don't get a lot of single polls about you know, do you approve of this backbencher in the House of Representatives? <laughs> it's not like a normal thing to poll about, you know, um, because you're not supposed to know who any of these people are. Uh, you'd be probably healthier. We'd all be healthier if we didn't know who the, <laughs> you know, 217 uh, members of Congress were in, in each of the political parties. It could be a healthier dynamic. But yeah, I mean, it's a risk. You know, I mean, the, you would hope, and I think your instinct would be to say, these are people who re will repel voters and, and will cause problems for their party. And then you think, about like Donald Trump's performance in the first presidential debate in which in which he just yelled, um, you know, incoherent trash at Joe Biden for an hour and a half and didn't let him talk and still almost won the election. So it's like, uh, I don't know, I guess I've just lost hope that there's anything that Republicans can actually do that will diminish their share of the vote other than like their voters just sort of dying off, not violently, just naturally. Okay, just it's a natural process of Republican voters leaving the planet Earth as we all will. Um, <laughs> well, and, uh, <laughs> so, uh, that's interesting. So yeah, I, uh, yeah I, I, I share my, that I have fear about it. And uh, I see clearly, based on Georgia, and we'll switch to Georgia now, uh, part two of our dis headline uh, discussion of what's with the headline in today's New York Times. Uh, Georgia, uh, with their recent uh, law, which, in my humble opinion, get your thoughts on it, is uh, a blatant attempt uh, to discourage and deter uh, Democrats, particularly black people, from voting uh, in future presidential elections. They surveyed uh, what went down in 2020 with the presidential election in Georgia and what went down in January of 2021 with the uh, Senate elections and came to the conclusion that too many black people are voting. So we have to do something to deter and discourage. And they 
<laughs> came up with this voting bill. Uh, and uh, Brian Kemp, the governor of uh, Georgia, as I just pointed out, who had stood up to Trump uh, on the issue of trying to hijack the election. He, he did, let's give him credit for that, David. He did uh, resist Trump's overtures uh, to uh, openly cheat, uh, is now trying to get back in the good graces of MAGA by promoting legislation uh, to correct a problem that was non-existent. Uh, and um, so that's my uh, interpretation. Uh, Nate Cohen, our dear friend uh, from the, uh, the New York Times, opined that it's not as bad, uh, the, the law is not as bad as some Democrats say it is. Uh, in in an, a column or an article, uh, David, that had one of the most infuriating tones of indifference to years and years of Jim Crow and civil rights abuse that I've ever read, particularly in the New York Times. That's just the general introduction. Cover it all. Why do you think the Republicans are changing the law? And what's your thought of the impact uh, it will have on future elections? Go ahead. Well, this is not a mystery, right? I mean, Republicans have had a stranglehold on Georgia for 20 years. I mean, Democrats hadn't won a state, statewide race in Georgia since the 90s. And it was just one of those southern states where the, the realignment took another 20 years to, to happen where, where Democrats were thrown out of the state legislature and stuff and Republicans consolidated their control over Georgia. And so they were shocked in 2020 um, by the outcome in Georgia. They consider it to be their state. It's one of the many states in the United States that is functionally operated as, a, as like a single party quasi-authoritarian state. Um, and they just, they sort of like cannot get over their sense of displacement of what they think is rightfully theirs, of what, what they think rightfully belongs to the white people of Georgia um, has been taken from them and that they're now a purple state, um, probably trending blue in the long term. Um, and they're sort of raging against the dying of the light about it. And they're like, well, how can we, you know, and they're doing the classic, like, let's fight the last war. How do Democrats win this election? Um, it's like uh, their supporters were able to vote. So how can we, how can we stop them? How can we stop Democrats from voting? What are like 10 things that we can do um, that that might sound good to people who don't pay very close attention to politics or sound sensible to people like that, um, but that we know has a disproportionate impact on the democratic coalition. Um, you know, people of color, people who live in marginalized communities um, and, and the disabled and, you know, uh, th this kind of thing, right? People in, in rural areas. So um, Democrats in rural areas specifically, right? So they sat down, I mean, is this, is this, is is election security the most pressing issue in the state of Georgia right now? Um, because they couldn't produce a single instance of uh, voter fraud in, in 2020. Um, they couldn't document any of their outlandish claims um, by, by their hallucinatory lawyers. Um, and so there was nothing, like, there's nothing to fix, right? Like, the election went fine. If anything, what they should have fixed was being able to count the votes earlier, the absentee and early votes, so that we didn't have to sit around for three days waiting for the results of the election but that's also something that they deliberately engineered so that Trump could go out and be like, oh, I won. And now that's oh, another vote drop. Well, what are the Democrats doing? They're stealing the election. Atlanta, black people, urban. Um, and <laughs> right, like <laughs> the same refrain. It's the same stuff they're doing all over the country, except Georgia Republicans actually screwed up very badly um, with their strategy around this law. Like if they had just done something like require voter ID to, to do an absentee ballot, or if they had like, moved up some deadlines or something, I don't think it would have consumed the attention of the whole country. But what led um, 
what led to them getting such a black eye about this is they actually included a couple of things that you're like, what is wrong with you? And they're like, what? <laughs> no, this is not something that's going to sound good to ordinary people. And they were like, what if we, what if we made it a crime? <laughs> I still can't believe they did this. What if we made it a crime to give water to people standing in the lines that we engineered with our voter suppression in the first place? What if we made it a crime to give water to someone? Yeah. Um, and it's like, okay, buddy, that's not the kind of headline you want for this. Stuff. Like, this is a very stupid <laughs> Yeah. Um, and so, uh, interestingly, I think the most problematic features of the law are not necessarily the ones that got the headlines. Um, the, the most problematic feature of the law is the one that allows the state legislature to like fire yeah. local election officials yeah. and replace them with whoever they want. Um, and, and, to, and taking it out of the hands of the secretary of state, which is like, they just crafted a law specifically to like stick the knife into Brad Raffensperger's or whatever his name is. Um, <laughs> and uh, this, this poor guy, like, <laughs> he's like the right wing forest Gump of the 2020 election. Yeah. It's just like, it's just like stupid name ends up in the headlines anytime, <laughs> anytime something terrible is happening. So, uh, so the, the stuff that I think got the most attention, I mean, obviously it's, it's very bad to, to make it a misdemeanor to give people water. Um, but in terms of like the impact on the elections, um, it's really not clear what, what exactly they'd be able to do, how quickly they could fire these administrators, like whether the new people could come in and, and just throw elections out or whatever. But this all seems very transparently a, a ploy to me to pull off what they tried to pull off in 2020, which was to have state legislatures override the will of the electorate and submit alternate slates of electors in a presidential election year, or just like toss out the results of, a, of congressional races in a, in a midterm election. Um, so yeah, obviously, you know, obviously this was an attempt by Georgia Republicans to like reclaim what's theirs, not by changing minds or coming up with a better platform or appealing to the new Georgia, but by, you know, just rehashing some Jim Crow era nonsense and, and inflicting it on us. So in that sense, it's very, it was it was very depressing. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just it, very depressing. It, it was very depressing. And let's just keep, uh, this is very important to keep in mind uh, that this is happening while investigators in Georgia are looking into the phone call that Donald Trump made uh, to the Secretary of State of Georgia, where he said, I'm, "I'm doing this from memory, so just find the votes I need, like whatever whatever number it was that he needed, eleven thousand, whatever. I need eleven thousand votes. I think that's what he said. I need eleven thousand votes. So." If that's, I, I don't know, that's got to be criminal. <laughs> Even in Georgia, that's got to violate some law. You know what I mean? Uh, and so it, it just, from the outside, it looks as though they crafted a law that would sort of enable a future Donald Trump or a future President Gates or, or a future uh, President Taylor Greene <laughs> or a future President Boebert really trying to, suddenly Sarah Palin looks like, it's just it's a great stateswoman all of a sudden. Um, but uh, it all began with Palin. Anyway, uh, it sure looks like they're opening the door uh, for that kind of finagling down the, uh, the road. Um, so Nate Cohen says, Nate Cohen says, ah, it's not so bad. Stop uh, worrying about it, Dems. Uh, in, a, in, a, in an article, as I said, with the tone was just so infuriating. Uh, what's your, uh, your attitude about Nate Cohen's sort of a hypothesis that it could go either way? Uh, do you share his sense that this could actually work for the Democrats? No. Look, <laughs> Nate, Nate Cohn is like part of a certain sort of class of like white data wizards who just like cannot see beyond the numbers to like what the actual substance of politics is sometimes. And he, Nate Cohn does great work, right? I mean, in a lot of ways, like his election night needles, I mean, people complain about them, but they are, they're like crack and I gladly put it in my veins. 
And, um, and he's right more often than he's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> he really is right more often than he's wrong, right? Like he called those Georgia Senate races like three minutes into the night. Um, so, you know, God bless him for that. But like he's wrong about this. And he's wrong for a number of different reasons. One um, is that he's cherry picking scholarly data and he's cherry picking scholarly studies to say like, well, this one study showed that reducing um, what we call convenience voting, right? Like you restrict um, you restrict the conditions under which you can catch an, cast an absentee ballot. You make it harder for people to vote by mail. You cut down on early voting. Um, and he says, look, most of the studies show that the people who use these procedures are people who would have voted anyway, right? And you're like, okay, sure. But when you add that to a context in which you've made election day voting a lot harder and which you've deliberately engineered extremely long lines that may deter people, um, I'm sorry, but there's really no way for these studies to prove um, that people were not put off by this and that they didn't show up to vote. You can look at aggregate turnout rates, but you can't go in and see like, um, you know, like, like Steve from, uh, uh, Steve from Cobb County wasn't able to go vote because of some of these new, uh, some of these new laws. That's just not going to show up in your data. What's going to show up in your data is turnout rates for particular yeah. groups. Um, and so he's wrong about that. I mean, he's, I think he's wrong about the particulars of absentee, of, of convenience voting. Like, I, I do think that there's probably a small boost to turnout, um, driven mostly by people who would not be able to cast a ballot on election day. And those people are out there and they use these procedures. It may not be a ton of people, right? But in a, in a, in a very close election, even if it's a half a percent of, of, the, of the electorate, um, uh, that matters. But because these small margins matter. Think back to the 2018 uh, Senate race in Florida, very consequential race in which Rick Scott beat Ben Nelson. Uh, oh, no, sorry. What's the Democrat's name? I'm thinking of the Nebraska guy. Uh, anyway, he's like an old dead ghost. He's done. So it doesn't matter. Uh, Rick Scott, who's just like a, just a nasty little predator who scammed old people for 20 years and then somehow became the governor of Florida, is a senator now because, because of some of this stuff, like a 10,000 vote margin. Um, so Charlie that's Chris? thing, right? Like the I What's just, that? I just, the name popped into my mind. That's the Democratic uh, senatorial candidate. I didn't mean to cut you off because you're in a riff. Uh, Charlie Griss, was no, that no, his no. name? Yeah, go ahead. No, that was the, that was the last one. It was the, it was the astronaut. Uh, I don't know why his name, I can't come up with his name right now. But he was, he was a former astronaut um, who was a senator. He was like a, just like a sub-replacement level Democrat who brought nothing to the party and <laughs> did, did nothing in the Senate except hold down the seat. Um, and and now, he's, now he's gone. But the but the broader point is like, you know, Nate Nate Cohn's going to say, well, the counter mobilization might, you know, might wipe out the effects of this law, and like, sure, I mean, maybe and maybe next year, right? But maybe not four years from now when people have stopped mobilizing around the question, um, or when the the shock of, of the of the outrage has faded, it it may very well be determinative two, three, four election cycles from now. It may be determinative next year. I mean, he just doesn't know. And I think it, um, but the broader point is that like, um, he's, he's stripping the, um, the philosophical and, and normative and moral outrage here out of the equation to just look at, at, the, at the practical impact. Yeah. And, and he's not thinking about the practical impact on the people of Georgia, on, on black voters in Georgia, of having once again, you know, their leadership say, um, "I'm going to try to stop you from voting." You know, I'm I'm going to try to do it in a, in a in a way that the courts will uphold. But my goal is for you, constituent, 
to not be able to vote because you're black, you know, um, and, and the cumulative psychological toll that that takes on people, um, the way that it casts them out of society, the way that it reinforces racial polarization by communicating to the white voters of Georgia that the goal of Georgia politics should be to reduce black voting. Um, and so all of the other negative externalities, uh, you know, negative effects of this action that, that you can see in, 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 in society um, by communicating to one segment of the electorate that the other segment of the electorate is such a threat to you um, that we can't allow them to participate in the, in the democratic process. Um, wow. And it also, you know, just last thing, um, the, the new voter ID provision for absentee balloting, um, uh, you know, photo ID requirement, that is really significant. And in voter ID laws, there, there is a consensus in political science that voter ID laws have, you know, a small but sometimes significant effect on turnout. Because voter ID laws, if you don't have an ID, you can't vote. It's not like you can find another way to vote, right? Like maybe, maybe in the run of the election, they do a drive and they get as many people these IDs as they can. But on election day, you can look at the data for each state. Like there's like 800,000 people in Texas that would otherwise be eligible who can't vote because they don't have the ID. And so maybe you get 400,000 of them to get an ID, but you're still dis you're just straight up disenfranchising like 400,000 people. No, maybe 350,000 of them wouldn't vote anyway, but that's 50,000. And, and again, in a close race, people always think just about the top of the ballot too. Um, they're like, well, you know, the Senate race wasn't close or this other race wasn't close. And they forget about all the other races up and down the ballot, municipal races, judicial races, all of this stuff that can be decided by eight votes. Um, you think about Iowa, this race in 2020 that was decided by six votes yeah. for a house seat that was run by a Republican by six votes. And I guarantee you, if Iowa didn't have some of these strict voting laws, that the Democrat would have won the election. Yeah. Um, and it's been studies going back to the 70s and 80s about the impact of some of these laws. And that they have changed the outcome of elections. You know, not every single election, right? It's not like Trump, it's not like Biden would have won Florida um, if it wasn't for voter ID, <laughs> right? He lost it decisively. Yeah. But a lot of races come down to, to 5,000, 10,000 votes. And that's, that stuff matters. And it really bothers me when somebody like Nate Cohn, um, who I think knows better, like people, and it, this happens in political science too. You know, political scientists will be like, the presidential debates don't matter. They only change the outcome by 1% in one direction. And I'm like, there's like three races in the country, <laughs> right? That that could be that could be impacted by a one percent change in, in the vote. Three. Yeah. Um, but don't tell me they don't matter. They don't matter. Like they don't matter as much as people think they matter. Maybe right. And maybe this law doesn't won't matter as much as people think it might matter. But it does matter. It really does. Oh, it matters tremendously. It was a great riff. I and uh, I was taking notes on it. I'm going to steal all your ideas and put them in a column. Everyone's going to think I'm so smart. But uh, <laughs> sorry, I just had to warn you. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, the, I mean, the accumulative effect, just follow, just let's just re repeat this, folks, because he, he said this in the middle of a riff. It was like picking up on one chord that Hendrix did at a five-minute solo. Let's go back to the chord that he played. The cumulative effect of telling white people that black people are corrupt when it comes to voting and that you have to fear black people when they vote. And so that the key to saving our country is to keep black people from voting. That is the theme of not just Georgia, but Texas, the Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio. That's the message Republicans are imparting 
And it's really tone deaf. I'm not picking on Nate Cohn, but I am. It's really tone deaf for an analyst just to pretend that doesn't exist. And all that matters is, well, let's uh, add up the column here and the column there. You know what? I'm going to go on another riff, and I'm, I'm really going to restrain myself, David. I'm a huge basketball fan. There's all these geeks who, like analytic geeks in basketball, they were freaking ruin the game. <laughs> it's like, well, if you, if you just take a look at his uh, three-point percentage shot within the, the last three minutes and ten seconds of it, come on, man, just put the calculator down and watch the game. You know, and uh, so, sorry, that riff was really unnecessary. <laughs> um, but, uh, no, I hear what you're saying, and uh, I'm, I appreciate the fact that the Dems are – standing up to this and raising it as an issue. Not quite sure what to make of corporate America's response. Your thoughts on that. What is corporate America articulating with the response to this? Go ahead. I mean, I, I think corporate America just doesn't want to be on the wrong side of history. I mean, they, you know, they can read, a, they can read poll results. I mean, they can see what people under the age of 40 think about all of this. Um, and they can see how making the wrong decision here might might win you the favor of a you know the 45 to 64 demographic who are very invested in MAGA world but that the other side the other slice of the pie is bigger um and i'm sure they're all like i i i wish that delta airlines didn't have to have like a partisan component you know like are we all going to have separate airlines now um are we are, are, like by the way what whatever whatever airline republicans pick as the one that's okay for them I will never fly on ever again. But like, I do not. I'm not getting on a flight that's full of like MAGA because they're making some ideological choice. And you know what they're going to? They're going to pick the stupidest airline too. They're going to be like, you know what? The best one is Spirit Airlines. You know, the one that charges you nine thousand dollars if you if you don't book your uh, baggage in advance or something. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so I, you know, I, it's silly. Um, I, I'm sure that the I'm sure the companies themselves don't want any part of this. Um, but they can see the public opinion data about, um, you know, about voting rights and things like that. And they know where the public is on this stuff and they want to be on the right side of it. And um, it's always just so funny to me that Republicans are like, you know, let the market speak, let, let the market decide, um, you know, hands off the invisible hand of capitalism. And then when the invisible hand guides them to some place <laughs> that they don't like, they're like, ah, oh, I get a cancel Delta. How many things have they... How many things that Republicans can't? By the way, our ones always complaining about cancel culture. How many things have they canceled in the last five years? You know what I mean? They canceled baseball, basketball, football, a uh, <laughs> bunch of airlines, all these food companies. Like, what are they going to do? Like, what do they do in their free time? Because they're not allowed to watch sports anymore. Because the sports are all corrupt, except I guess NASCAR. Um, <laughs> no, so they're, they're mad at NASCAR like, too. Because NASCAR. I don't know. Yeah, they're all, oh, oh my goodness, that's a whole other story. I, I know a little bit too much about NASCAR, but yes, they're mad at NASCAR too. Trust me when I tell you that. Bubba yeah, Wallace, like, they're really they mad at him. To think like, you know, uh, so the 50 biggest companies and all the major sports and everyone who makes the music and movies that you like, they all hate you. Do you think that it might be cause to like take a step back and think about your choices in life? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. maybe they hate you because you're disgusting and corrupt and racist. <laughs> Um, instead of like, you know, they're in the pocket of the radical left. It's like, it's not radical left to want people to vote in a democracy. You know, um, if you have credible proof that some, some procedure that we're using can open the door to fraud, fine, let's, let's have a conversation about it. But anybody who spent five minutes studying this stuff knows that in-person voter fraud is not the threat to our election integrity, right? Like maybe 50 people on, on, in the whole country are going to do it in any given year because the, the, the odds of in influencing 
the results are, are so low and you're committing a federal crime. Like, I'm not going to go to prison to add one more vote for J.B. Pritzker. You know what I mean? He doesn't need that. So, um, like, what, it, the, the real threat to election integrity is the other stuff buried in that law, right? It's, it's, it's having state legislatures be able to overturn results. It's not taking election security of the voting machines and stuff like that seriously. It's, um, it's, it's not having our government invested in, in protecting against various kinds of hacks and attacks. Um, that's the real threat to election integrity. And the other threat is, is a drop in public confidence. Um, and they're making that worse. Yeah. They're, they're making, they're exaggerating the public's distrust of elections for all the wrong reasons. And they're ignoring the things that actually are threats to the integrity of our elections. And so it's just another instance where Republicans are making calculations about their self-interest that are completely at odds with the, with the like continued survival of democracy in the United States. Um, and so I've seen some people be like, Democrats are, are overplaying their hands. You know, the law's not that bad. Um, and when they freak out about things that aren't that big of a deal, you know, you're crying wolf, all that stuff, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think Democrats are doing exactly the right thing here by, 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 because they are making a big deal out of it. And they didn't do this a decade ago when they started rolling out these voter ID laws. They didn't make a big deal out of it. Um, John Paul Stevens signed with the majority upholding voter ID laws. Um, and that signaled to the left that they were fine. And that's why the public like 70% of the public approves of voter ID laws. Like that's like one piece of the law that actually has probably has public support, you know, wrongly, I think, but they're, they're exploiting, um, you know, they're exploiting the public's ignorance about this issue, I think. And so, um, yeah, just a pox on all their houses, man. I mean, I hope it really does come back to bite them next year. And I hope that Stacey Abrams is elected governor and she goes, she goes on TV and just like basically flips them all off. But, um, <laughs> But I'm not that confident that's what's going to happen. I mean, I think this could really have a negative impact on Georgia. So and oh, there's no. a Senate seat up next year. Yeah. No, they, they, it, they knew what they were doing. And, and they uh, doing. yeah, they knew what they were. It was a very tactical move. And to overcome it, you have to uh, overcome all the obstacles that they've put in front of people to keep them from voting. Uh, so yeah, you're absolutely correct. Anybody who has followed Chicago politics, knows how difficult, let's just take the Republican and MAGA ideological divide out of this. Anybody who follows Chicago politics knows how difficult it is to beat an entrenched incumbent. The entrenched incumbent has all the advantages of name recognition, uh, probably has more money because of contributions from the corporate donors who are relying on him or her for all the uh, favors that they grant them. So you're running against... And entrenched come it's a difficult. They throw things in your way. They challenge your petitions to get on the ballot. They challenge your voters uh, that they know are going to vote for you. Those are just more obstacles that they put in your way. So, oh, yeah, it's a very tactical move by people who uh, want to win an election and don't care where they're leading the country. All right, we're going to close yeah. with one of your favorite topics. Uh, Joe Manchin and the filibuster. Uh, Joe Manchin, of course, the Democrat, uh, the Democratic senator from the state of West Virginia. Uh, David Ferris has come on the show many times <laughs> and opined on Manchin. His fear, I think it was in October of 2020, you had this nightmare that it would be a 50-50 split and the Democrats would be relying on Joe Manchin. And lo and behold, here we are. <laughs> Anyway, Joe Manchin said, well, I don't know about this filibuster. I really believe in the filibuster. What to do with Manchin and what to do with the filibuster, David Ferris? 
Well, first of all, dun, 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 for President Manchin. Um, so <laughs> President Manchin, our true leader, um, the person who's going to decide the content of all of the laws that get passed over the next 18 months, God bless him, um, has, you know, gone out once again, written another op-ed saying that there's like no circumstances under which he's going to alter the filibuster rule, uh, which means seems to shut the door to whatever they were going to try to do with the talk, you know, make him the talking filibuster, like make him actually hold the floor and, and read war and peace onto this, onto the Senate <laughs> floor or whatever they were going to do. Um, he doesn't want to do any of that. And, um, you know, that means the whole democratic agenda is going to get squeezed into three budget reconciliation bills. I mean, God bless them. They figured out a way to, to pass three reconciliation bills instead of one, um, which is just as much an, an abuse of the, of the spirit <laughs> of the budget reconciliation law as anything that they want to do to the filibuster. So, uh, you know, so you want to go around the filibuster three separate times, but you don't uh, you don't want to actually get get rid of the filibuster. It's like oh. <laughs> a <laughs> distinction okay. without a meaning. It's, you know what it's somebody that's like it's somebody that's like I, they're like anti they're ideologically anti car. They're like I don't own cars, man. Really against them. Really stupid. You know, they pollute, kill people, pedestrians. Terrible. I hate cars. And then they rent a car every day of the week. You yeah. know, they like get one of those like you know like, uh, car shares or whatever. And then they drive all around the city. It's like, okay, this, I mean, car shares are great. Don't get me wrong. But it's like, if you're, if you're ideologically anti-car, you shouldn't probably be driving one. Right. And so if you're, if you're, if your ideological belief is that everything that happens in the Senate should have 60 votes, why are you signing on to an attempt to do it three times in one year to use this like stupid arcane law that no normal person could possibly explain to another, another normal person? <laughs> why are you doing that? Um, and the, and the logic I just, it really gets, it just really gets me because Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, who's like actually become much more, a much bigger thorn in our side than I anticipated, uh, who's using the same logic. And they go out and they say, um, you know, since we started messing with the filibuster, there's been a decline in, in partisanship and the Senate's not getting anything done. And it's like, no, um, that is the opposite of what has happened, right? Like what has happened this century is that Republicans figured out the Democrats did a bit of this too during the Bush administration. Okay, so I don't want to like just I don't want to put this all on Republicans, but it's mostly them. Um, is what they figured out is like actually we can we can make it so that nothing can happen in the Senate hmm. um, by using this rule, and that's what they've done. And the only time the only laws that have gotten passed, <laughs> I swear to God, the only significant laws that have gotten passed in the last twelve years have been passed via budget reconciliation, yeah. via procedures that do an end run around the filibuster. So for them, for Manchin and Cinema to go out there and claim that adhering to the 60 vote threshold actually increases bipartisanship is like so delusional that I really, I really wonder whether they exist on the same material plane that the rest of us do. Mm -hmm. Like, have you watched the same history unfold that I have? Because the history that I have seen suggests that this 60 vote threshold has been exploited again and again by the minority to prevent to prevent the, yeah. the majority from governing and yes democrats have done some of that too right but like um the whole thing is ridiculous you know like no no there's only one other legislature on the planet that has any kind of supermajority requirement for ordinary legislation um it's crying out for reform there's like so much stuff that needs to get done in the united states we have so many problems that need to get fixed and these two knuckleheads are, are holding it up just just all on their own you know uh and it drives me crazy but you also asked what do we do about joe Manchin? Um, and, uh, you know, that's not the love, the love of your one, the one, love the one you're with, you know, if you can't be with the one you love. Yes. The one, yes. The one you're with. You got to love Joe Manchin because there's nothing we can do about it. 
Kirsten Sinema can get primary, and I hope that somebody announces a primary challenge to her as soon as is humanly possible, because somebody significantly to her left could win in Arizona. You know, not not AOC, but like somebody to the left of Kirsten Sinema could win in Arizona. Joe Manchin, God 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 love his soul, is the only Democrat in West Virginia that could hold that Senate seat, and and the dude is seven. I, this is this does not get talked about a lot, but dude is seventy three, and he's not a spring chicken. Um, and so all we can really do with Joe Manchin. We can't threaten to primary him because he'll just laugh. He'll be like, okay, you, know, you want to lose by 30 points? Go ahead, primary me. Yeah. Um, so primary threat's not good. It's not going to work. Um, he's not up until 2024. So it's not like Biden can be like, if you lose next year, I'll make you ambassador to your favorite country. Um, <laughs> or I'll make, yeah. I'll make you the secretary of like, our least important executive agency. Um, none of that stuff is available. And so... People just got to put people just have to keep putting pressure on him. Um, it's just people got to call his office and we can't do it because he's not, he's not going to care if people call from Illinois. Right? It's got to be the Democrats of West Virginia. It's got to be people in the media just holding his feet to the fire. Um, you know, there's all these fears out there. You know, uh, Speaking of this stuff, I read an article today. It was like, it seems like people putting pressure on Stephen Breyer to step down from the Supreme Court might actually harden his stance on it. And I'm like, you know what? You're, you're, you're really, this is like a, this is, this is just abuser talk, you know, like, oh, I'm not allowed to say that I think he should retire because it might make him not want to retire. Yeah. Like, you know, no, I, I'm not going to stop doing that. If, if he's so, if he's so thin skinned that he's going to stay on the Supreme Court and get replaced by uh, President Taylor Green instead of President Biden, that's fine, you know, uh, but I'm not going to stop saying it. And I, I think the idea that the activists are like pushing Manchin to the right or, or, or causing him to dig in, it's like, then that's, you know, that says more about them than it does about us, right? Like, I, I you know, people should not stop doing the advocacy and, and pressing our senators to get things done just because they're afraid that they're, uh, you know, the, the, the our, our little snowflakes in the Senate might, <laughs> might have a bad reaction. <laughs> I'm with you 100% in that. That's a good place to close it down because I, I, I agree with you 100%. Don't say anything. You'll get her mad at us. Right. <laughs> it's like it's such a Chicago mentality. <laughs> Yeah, but in Chicago, it's like, don't say anything. You get the mayor mad at us. But this is the uh, national version. Don't say anything. Joe Manchin will vote against us. He's going to do what he wants to do, folks. <laughs> and he's going to use your protest to show West Virginians, like, see, I must be on your side if all these lefties hate me. So. Anyway, David Ferris, it's a blast talking to you as always. And um, keep up the good work. You can read his stuff at The Week. And it's funny stuff. His thing on Matt Gates, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you're kind of down, you're feeling blue about politics, read <laughs> David Ferris on the lunacy of the Republican Party these days. Uh, David, stay safe and sound. We'll talk to you soon, all right? Thanks, Ben. It's great to be on the show as always, and uh, look forward to next time. That's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. 